Good morning, church. Uh, there is something about when the tribe worships together. Um, needed that after two weeks. I don't know about you, but I did. And uh, whether you're here live with us or if you're online, um, hopefully you are feeling that too. There is just something about it when we're all together and realize that the presence of God is here with all of us. So, um, so glad that we could all kind of be together again today after <laughs> two weeks off. Um, I'm still not 100%, uh, like a lot of people are, um, got this thing that's just kind of hanging on. So if I cough up a lung, you know, just forgive me and we'll move on, okay? <laughs> just keep that in mind. Anyway, uh, if you're watching online, so glad that you're here. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David. I'll be your guide for the next 30 minutes or so. And uh, today, I want to um, continue on this <clears throat> series, Something is Different. Um, I made an observation, I think at least twice within the last couple of months um, during some other messages, and it's something that I've been wanting to track down for a while, and I finally um, got a chance to do that. And, and, and here's the thought, the, the, I'm just going to kind of start with this, and you, you probably heard me say this, so... I'm going to put it out there one more time, but the, the distinguishing feature of ancient Israel is the fact that God was present with them. If we really take a good, hard look at this people group um, that we read about, especially in the Old Testament, there, there really is, is no other distinguishing feature than the fact that God was with them. Now, I got this idea from, from a book. Um, it's a, a, a book that actually Pastor Dan had recommended to me, and I've been slowly reading it over the last couple of months, and I find myself having to go back and reread things because it's just been very impactful. But this is one of the things that the author pointed out, and I thought this was, was really interesting because there's, there's different ways to look at culture, uh, specifically culture of a civilization. Uh, culture is one of these words that we use uh, quite a bit, especially if we're talking about, you know, corporate culture or church culture or the culture wars. Or, but when we, when we think in terms of just how we understand a civilization, we typically use this word culture. Now, again, there's different aspects to it, but at the very least, every civilization has a certain history. They have um, a certain amount of art and literature um, they have military and politics, they have religion, they have science. There's, there's different lenses that you can look at a civilization, a particular culture. And, and so I, I, as I was kind of thinking through this idea about the presence of God, it really struck me that as far as a culture goes, there is nothing that distinguishes Israel more than the presence of God. And, and I want to I kind of explore this just a little bit with you, because I think this is really interesting. So if we, if we consider Israel's history, we have it written for us, right? It's the, it's the Pentateuch and then some. But we have this history of, of Israel that we read about, and at the, I mean, from literally the opening lines of that history, it is about God's interaction with human beings specifically through a particular family that becomes a nation. The entire history is centered on God's interaction with human beings all the way through. And so the, 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 the moment of history 
throughout whatever we read is that Israel is wrapped up in the work of God on earth. Period. There's just no other way to look at that history. Um, Consider also art and literature. Now, Israel is not known to be a heavyweight in, say, visual arts. Uh, It's not like, you know, say the the pyramids or, um, you know, some of the other ancient wonders that we've seen. We don't necessarily have the, the same types of visual arts. In fact, the only thing that we really have that's of any artistic quality is the poetry. It's the Psalms. It, it's not even the music per se as it is the lyrics. And if you look at all of the lyrics and you, you put it all together, especially in the Psalms, it's all centered on the presence of God. Every last bit. In fact, the only poetry that you find that's not um, God-centered is the Song of Solomon, which is the most erotic book in the Bible. I'm just going to say that one out loud. But even still, that relationship that the, the king has with this particular woman, um, yes, it's romantic, uh, but it's also woven in with themes of the divine. There's just no art or literature, per se, coming out of ancient Israel that isn't God-centered or God-focused. Now, you might find little pockets here and, here, here and there, but for the most part, all of it is wrapped up in the fact that God was present with ancient Israel. You know, take a look at military and politics as well. Um, the only, I guess, fair estimate is that Israel was a regional power at best. Under King David and King Solomon, the borders were from Egypt in kind of the south uh, west up to Mesopotamia, which was in the northeast. Uh, and then you've got, you know, the sea on one side and you've got the desert on the other. And so consequently, you know, you don't, you know, there's not a whole lot of room for expansion here. And, and it's fascinating to me that those two great kings, the, the, the borders of Israel were never bigger. And still it was only regional. And then on top of it, and this is the one I find incredibly uh, fascinating, is that God actually restricted the type of military that Israel could have. In in fact, one of the things that he said is, don't have cavalry. Now what's cavalry? Well, they're soldiers mounted on horseback. Um, And at the time, a, a trained war horse was another soldier on the battlefield. You effectively doubled or tripled the effectiveness of your military simply by adding men on horseback. Why? Because you had double the, the horsepower, the war power, and you had more speed on the battlefield. And yet God makes this very deliberate statement that Israel was supposed to maintain essentially Um, a group of infantry. That's it. Now, Egypt had had cavalry and chariots, which were kind of like the ancient tanks. So did Mesopotamia. All of those areas did, but Israel, that wasn't something. Now, we find out that, you know, King David and Solomon did have some cavalry, and, and they got in trouble for it, frankly. 
And there's a whole section about that. But why would God do that? Why would God do that? And I think that it comes down to this, is that victory rested in the fact that God was present with them, not on their own military might. Do you see that? I mean, it's truly extraordinary. The types of things that God built into them, that they would um, become more reliant, more dependent on him for the things that they needed in order to survive in the world. We can take a look at, well, religion, which is wrapped up in history. Obviously, very Yahweh-centric, right? Of course. That one's an easy one. But things like science and, and even finance, those things didn't come until much, much later. And even if you talk to scientists who are Jewish in their heritage, not all of them, of course, but some of the main ones in history will always point back to a divine presence. So too with finance. So too with, and the list goes on and on. There is simply no aspect of culture related to to the Jews that doesn't involve the centrality of the presence of God. Period. I can't find anything else. And I, I suspect that there are other aspects of culture that we could think about, but the thread seems obvious to me. Israel was a people of the presence. That's it. That was their distinguishing mark. Nothing else. Now, don't get me wrong, it's pretty impressive. But there's nothing else that I would say would truly distinguish them that isn't somehow related to the presence of God. And I think this is illustrated dramatically in in two particular places, and I want you to see these, because this is really interesting. So the first place that I want to take a look at um, comes right after God rescues Israel from Egypt. You know the story because we watch it every Easter time with Charlton Heston, right? The Exodus. And so in Exodus chapter 40, we read about Moses um, (laughs) pitching a big tent. And so he had this tent that he would um, put up in it. It it, it was very specific in how it was constructed and, and, and the way it was supposed to be laid out. And it was called the Tent of Meeting because, um, you know, very pragmatically, that's where Moses met with God. So it was the Tent of Meeting, right? You know, they're they're not the most, you know, innovative, creative name callers in ancient Israel. Um, But anyway, one of the things that you find out is as time goes on, the Tent of Meeting um, would be in the center and the 12 tribes would arrange themselves around the Tent of Meeting. And I want you to see what happens here in Exodus chapter 40, beginning with verse 34. Here it is. Imagine this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's another word for big tent. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. I mean, that's pretty astonishing, because if you you remember the story, 
when Israel is camped out at the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses goes up to meet with God at the top of the mountain, he's greeted with smoke and fire. And now that smoke and fire is no longer on the mountaintop, it's in the tent of meeting. Now think about that for just a moment. Think about that scene. The presence of God is signified by the cloud and at night by a cloud with fire. If you had been an enslaved people for 300 some odd years, how important would it be for you to see your liberator day in and day in and day out? Pretty important. And here God gives them this beautiful visual representation of himself His presence would be with them, and it would even guide them. As long as the presence was on the tabernacle, they didn't have to pick up stakes. But as soon as it lifted, up, we're moving. You know, talk about being guided. That's an amazing, amazing uh, picture. Now, something similar occurs later on um, when Solomon completes the temple. Remember, we went from a tent to a temple. And we read part of this last week. Um, Let me read the the first couple of verses. This is 2 Chronicles 7, first couple of verses. When Solomon finished praying, okay, they're at the temple, they're dedicating the temple. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement. Yeah, I'll bet you they did. With their faces to the ground and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good, his love endures forever. The same cloud of smoke and fire that was on the tabernacle that guided them through the wilderness to the promised land, now took up residence in the temple, which, remember, was like a palace. They had built a palace where God himself could dwell. So their presence would always be among the people of Israel. And they responded, he is good. A little scary, too, but he was good. And his love endures forever. And it was after this, of course, that God promises that he'd heal the land if his people would humble themselves in prayer. Remember, we talked about this last week. But we have the same idea of a cloud filling the, 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 the temple and, and this idea of fire. It's so interesting to me because a number of kings later, the prophet Elijah is challenging the priests of Baal and what happens Fire falls from heaven and consumes all of the sacrifice. It's an astonishing picture. And oh yeah, remember when the disciples, after Jesus had left them, they're in Jerusalem, they're in an upper room, they're scared, they're not sure what to do, the rabbi is gone, and yet Jesus said, wait for the gift that God has promised you, and what happened? Tongues of fire lit up their heads. And they began to speak in other tongues and it was so astonishing that it spilled out into the streets and people could hear the good news of Jesus in their own language. 
presence of God is woven throughout all of this. And he gives us these little visual symbols and signs and absolutely fascinating. But let's return back to our series. Something is different. In the last two years, the world has changed, life has changed, the church has changed. We talked about this last week. And if it is different, then perhaps maybe we need to begin to think differently. Maybe we need to think a little more theologically. Or maybe, maybe there's something that we need to do because God is very consistent throughout the history of Israel and perhaps, just maybe, he's calling us back to the root of it all. To get down, I guess, back to basics, as it were. And I want to suggest that God may be bringing us back to something that really matters more than anything else. And I want you to consider what the New Testament writer Paul um, wrote to the church at Corinth. I'm going to go through this a, a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially prophecy. This is interesting. He said, you want to desire these gifts, but especially prophecy. And a few verses later, he articulates why. Here we pick it up in verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. This is kind of an interesting verse, I think. Because it's, he's asking us, or he's telling us, or he's admonishing us to grow up, to be a little more mature, except when it comes to evil. Kids have a tendency to know what's right and wrong. And you know this by virtue of the fact if you take a larger piece of cake than what they have, they inherently know that's not what? Fair. He's saying when it comes to something that's evil, be infants. But in your thinking, but in your thinking, be an adult. This is an an important feature, I think, to this verse. He goes on, verse 21. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. We find that in Isaiah chapter 28. And what he's ultimately saying here is, look, there are gifts of the Spirit and they all have a different um, point to them. They all have a different purpose. They have something that they're trying to accomplish and he's setting this up for this group of people in Corinth to understand. Verse 22, tongues, speaking in a different language then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Now, please understand, he is not knocking speaking in tongues. What he's suggesting here is there's a purpose to tongues. 
And that purpose isn't necessarily to convince unbelievers. They all have a purpose. You just need to understand what that purpose is, okay? Because this can get a little bit, little bit confusing. It goes on. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, this is not supposed to be scary because sometimes the secret of the heart is really what God is up to in their lives and they need to be encouraged that way. But the point is, is that the purpose of prophecy is different than the purpose of tongues. But ultimately, and this is where I think this is, this is all driving to the central point. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What would that be like? What would it be like if somebody walked into a church and they so felt God moving and active that they said, God is among you. God's here. What would, what would that be like? I mean, isn't there this little part of you, you want that? You want to experience it too, but you really want other ex- people to experience it as well. I think that's true. Because really what's happening here is when God is, is really among you, People today would say something is different. There's something different that's going on here in this place. God is among you. I've been thinking about this for quite some time. And I think this is ultimately the issue here. The form isn't as important as the result. And, and I was, I've, been, I've been thinking about this too because we often talk about this idea of revival. I don't know about you, but I'd like to see revival hit the church. But please understand something, and and you must understand this, is that there has been no revival in the history of the world that hasn't offended somebody. The Great Awakening, which happened 18th century, um, probably had effects for 40, 50, 100 years on this country. And even then, the great Jonathan Edwards, the Congregationalist pastor who wrote a sermon, I kid you not, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Boy, that was uplifting, (laughs) you know? But Jonathan Edwards took a lot of criticism for his revival because there were shrieks and people were falling down and shaking and all kinds of things. And, And he said, look, what's the result of all of it? And he went through and he laid out all of the positive benefits, even though there were things that were occurring in the assembly that were offensive to others. There is no revival that doesn't have something that's offensive to somebody, whether it's speaking in tongues, whether it's, who knows what it is, whether it's shaking, it's falling down. There was one a number of years ago where people just started laughing. It's called the Toronto Outpouring. And a lot of people were offended by that. Oh, that could be demons. Really? What was the net result of it all? Were there people falling down and saying, God is among you? That's the result 
that we're after. The form, God gets to choose the form. We're just responsible for responding to him. That's it. In other words, when we follow God, when we chase after him, and when we're asking for his empowerment, we too become people of presence. We become people of the presence, and that's our distinguishing mark. I love our worship. I love our community. I love all of that, but what I love more is the fact that God becomes present here on Sunday mornings. That's what I love. And I want more of that each and every time. And I hope that it, you can feel it when you're at home, too, if you're watching online. I hope you feel that as well. Because we are becoming a people of presence. And I think this is what God has been after all along. Simply to be with his people. I mean, from the very beginning, when he walked in the Garden of Eden with the first humans, I mean, even his name when he came as Jesus was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, right? I mean, even his name suggests that, that, uh, that this is true. God isn't withholding, and he's not holding out on us. He wants us to be people of his presence. This is what he's wanted all along. I think it was uh, um, Bill Johnson, the pastor over at uh, Bethel Church in Redding, California, who said, our faith is dependent on our belief in the goodness of God. And to me, the goodness of God starts with this idea that God wants us to be present with him. That he wants us to be together. He wants to hang out with us. He wants us to hang out with him. That's what he's really after. And you know what? When I think about all of this put together, it seems to me that this is the different that the world needs. The world is screaming for people of presence to show up when they need it, to pray for them. Here's an interesting thing. I've noticed this. Maybe you have too. But I have met people who aren't necessarily Christians and they're always open to being prayed for. Sometimes Christians are like, oh, you don't have to worry about it. Really? Hmm. People of presence, that's what the world is, is hungry for. That's what we're hungry for if we're completely honest with ourselves. So I have an idea, which is a dangerous statement for me to make, I know. But I have an idea. Let's continue praying together. A number of you were doing the 714 thing last week. Remember, um, we did uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 714. At 7.14 a.m., 7.14 p.m., you got to choose which or both. We're just asking everybody to pray for, for Thrive Church. So let's continue that. I, I, have an, I have an idea. So, But let's change it up a little bit because um, I really am interested in this thing that's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So let's see, 1,400 hours. Come on, you military guys. What is that, 2? 2 p.m., right, 2 o'clock? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to set our alarms not for 7.14. We're going to do it for 2.25. 1,400 hours, 25 minutes. 1 Corinthians 14.25. Surely God is among you. And so at 2.14, I want you to pray that Thrive would become a people of presence. Just that. 
If it's a simple arrow prayer, you shoot up that arrow prayer because you're busy, you're chasing after kids, you're having to deal with the boss, but at 2.14, with that alarm inside your head, you go, oh God, help us to be a people of presence. And, and here's, I, I, I'm going to ask you to do one other thing. I want you to note what's happening when that alarm goes off. Because I don't know about you, it seems to me that alarm goes off at really inconvenient times. Have you noticed this? Or there's something that's going on where you needed to pray that prayer right there in that moment. You didn't want to, but you needed to because that alarm is going to keep going off. So you set that alarm for 225, and each day at that time, you say, Lord, make us a people of your presence. And try to note what's actually going on. If you've got a journal, you might want to write that one down. 225, start today. And let's do this one together. And let's see what God might do to honor that prayer. Because I think he does. I think this is something he wants. You know what? The easiest thing to do um, to have your prayers answered is find out what God wants you to pray and just pray it back to him. If he wants us to be a people of presence, you keep praying that prayer. And maybe it's collectively, maybe it's individually. I don't know. He gets to choose that. But if we pray for it, let's see what happens and keep that in mind. Let's pray. God, thank you for, for being present throughout history. It's just so interesting to me, Lord, that we um, can look through the pages of an ancient book and see you be so present and yet have so much trouble finding your presence in our daily lives. Your presence, Lord, wasn't just for them, it's for us. And so I pray, God, over the next <clears throat> week at 2.25 in the afternoon that you would hear the prayers of your church asking to make us people of your presence to go on that type of an adventure with you. To really have an understanding of what it means to really be with you because that's what you want for us. And for those who are at home and watching, I pray, Lord, that, that they too would experience your presence in new ways. Even though they're not here in the assembly, they are still seeking your presence and I pray that you would honor that too. God, we want to be a people of presence. We want to have that to be the distinguishing mark of Thrive Church. And, and Lord, we desperately want all of us to feel and for others to experience the fact that you are here among us. Because that is just crackling with possibility. Your power will follow your presence, and so we're going to chase after your presence even harder. So Lord, we're going to make room for you, just as we sang earlier, to be present with us, to have a, a deep understanding of what it means to be a people of presence. Thank you, God, that we can trust you with this, that this isn't just some pie-in-the-sky dreaming, but this is actually something that you desire for your people. And it's rooted in your goodness and we can trust your goodness. 
Holy Spirit, come. Be present. In Jesus' name.